This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ritupana Patke. Today, I'm going to be in conversation with Trina Nilina Banerjee. Trina Nilina Banerjee is an assistant professor in cultural studies at the Center for Studies in Social Sciences, Calcutta. For her PhD, she worked on a history of women in the group theater movement in Bengal between 1950 and 1980. She has also been researching the interfaces between women's movements and political theater in contemporary Manipur for several years now. Her essays and reviews on these and other subjects have appeared in national and international journals, as well as in several edited volumes. Between 2011 and 13, she taught at the Theatre and Performance Studies Department at the School of Arts and Aesthetics at JNU. Her research interests include gender performance, political theory, sorry, gender, performance, political theatre, theories of the body, post-colonial theatre and South Asian history. She has also been a theatre and film actress as well as a journalist and fiction writer. Her book, Performing Silence, Women in the Group Theatre Movement in Bengal, was published by the Oxford University Press, India, in October 2021. This is the book that we will primarily be talking about today. Trina, I am so glad to have you with us and welcome to this interview. Uh, Thank you. I'm very glad to be here as well and to be talking to you about the book. Right. So let me begin by asking you about the inspiration behind writing this book, because your bio just mentions that you are also a theatre and film actress and you've worked on the theatre movement in Bengal. I think it was uh, more uh, a compulsion than an inspiration, uh, really, because um, I do write about this uh, briefly in the preface, and I'm not sure I had the clarity um, when I began to work on this. Um, But I do write about this in my preface that I grew up pretty much in the theater, uh, in the sense, sometimes literally and in a broader sense, metaphorically, because both my parents were um, in the group theater movement, my uh, that in fact that's how they met. They they met in the in the theater as well. So my father was a theater director. My mother was both a professor of comparative literature and an actress. So um, unlike many other schoolmates that I had, um, I had a sort of intimate knowledge of what the theater was um, as uh, as an audience, but also someone who kind of knew the insides of it, uh, watched rehearsals, sat in auditoriums, etc., etc. And that was really a a fascinating world for me. But I don't think I realized uh, the compulsion to write about it until uh, much later. And I wasn't even sure what form that was going to take because I was an English literature student. I finished my master's uh, at Jadapur University in Calcutta and then I got a scholarship 
um, to go to Oxford to study for uh, master of studies, and I was still doing English literature. In fact, my dissertation in Oxford was about um, uh, modernism and empire in uh, 20th century uh, uh, English literature. Um, I was looking at Virginia Woolf. I was looking at uh, Jean Rhys. I I had absolutely nothing to do with the theatre so far as my academic work was concerned. But once I came back from that and I was thinking of applying for my PhD uh, to the US, something happened in the in between, which is that I had really missed doing theatre when I was away. And um, I think there was some impulse in me to somehow bring... Uh, my life as as a, as a theater practitioner as and I was quite actively an actress at that time and my work uh, in the group theater and my academic work face to face with each other and I think that was and I felt like there was a, there was some kind of a deep division between what I was what I had grown up with and what my experience of the world was and what I was working on. So I felt that somehow I needed to bring that together. So that's when I began my PhD on this. And it was the PhD which has turned into the book. Right. So in your book, you do mention that you focus on the period between 1950 to 1980. So if you could, you know, explain the reasoning behind it. Uh, well, the first marker is uh, is uh, kind of, you know, easy to see why that's the marker. But actually, the book begins a little earlier. Uh, uh, it begins uh, in the 1940s. And uh, and that's kind of, I say this in the book as well, it's kind of the uh, the framing uh, or the, the, the prehistory of the group theatre movement in Bengal, which is that I look at the Indian People's Theatre Association, which, as you know, in the years uh, just preceding independence, was very strongly active in Bengal. So uh, it begins with looking at the work of the Indian People's Theatre Association. It looks at the various uh, paradigms, uh, political, aesthetic, organizational, that determine the functioning of the IPTA in Bengal in those years, but not just in Bengal. The IPTA was a national organization in a very, very active sense at that point of time. And it also looks at the and the ways in which, um, as a political organization, as a, as a, as a in fact, I mean, as a, as a sort of um, embodiment of the cultural vanguard, the, uh, the the kind of energies and the kind of uh, sort of fundamental problems that that it encounters. Uh, in the 1940s. Uh, and I argue that many of these modes of operation, many of these, both these energies and inspirations, as well as these problems, persist in the way the group theater uh, fashions itself in the years that come. So the IPTA splits in Bengal in the late 40s. And uh, uh, you know, it is from uh, this split that the you know the first uh, theater group in in uh, Bengal, the first active uh, group theater in Bengal emerges. But it's not even about a question of direct lineage or whether the members themselves in these group theaters later were part of IPTA at some point or the other. Uh, but the question was far more whether there was a certain driving imperative, a certain kind of ideological um, framework that continued 
in many of the groups that that kind of emerged uh, as theater groups in the 1950s in Bengal. So I, I look at the 40s and the early 50s because of that. Um, and of course, everyone knows that Depta was an entirely new mode of operation, uh, you know, of, of actually making theater and producing theater and performing theater, very different from the commercial theater uh, of Bengal at that time. Uh, or, 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 or all over India, it was it was an entirely different mode of uh, mode of uh, thinking about uh, theatre, thinking about art, in fact. And uh, there are also very, very clear reasons why the book kind of ends um, in the seventies. Uh, even though the con- in the conclusion, I talk a lot about what happens in the the next two decades. I try to sort of uh, mark some of the very strongly emerging trends in the in the in, and tendencies that determine where theatre goes in the eighties and nineties. Uh, but it stops uh, actually technically in nineteen seventy seven, the last chapter before the epilogue and conclusion uh, for. Two or three reasons. Uh, the first, of course, is that um, the last chapter uh, deals with a, a production that um, that uh, was staged in Bengal, in, in Calcutta, uh, in the years of the national emergency. So between 1975 and 1977. Uh, but 1977 is also the year where not just uh, it's the non it, it's not the, just the year that the emergency ends and the elections are held um, in India. It's also the year that the left front government comes to power in Bengal. And I argue that after the left front comes to power, uh, the relationship of political theater in Bengal, especially uh, most of political theater in Bengal uh, was left oriented at that point of time, oriented towards some color of a leftist ideology, uh, the relationship of this political theater to um, the state, to uh, institutional frameworks of the government changes because the new government is in many ways uh, sort of um, positively orientated towards these uh, these uh, theater groups. So there is, there is uh, much more sort of patronage and support from the stage to the groups who are of the same ideological, uh, you know, um, color often. But even if it uh, it isn't so, there is a certain kind of state support which was missing in the early earlier years where if there was a far more antagonistic relationship between these groups and the state. Um, that was one reason. So I felt that the particular political na- relationship of the groups to the state changes um, uh, and it would require different tools to understand this this new uh, sort of uh, cultural formation um, that's one the other is from the 80s onwards you have uh, the the immense popularity of the Udarshan as a as a medium um, which again uh, changes the, the the modes in which uh, we uh, you know the theater would relate to the spectators what kind of spectators come what is the popularity of the theater um, what other options are available to the audiences uh, but also interestingly from the 80s onwards you have more women in roles that were not so uh, so kind of um, uh, frequent for them in the decades preceding which is that there were much many more women now uh, directing plays 
many more women slowly, many more as in, I mean, perhaps the, the first few women who are emerging uh, as uh, leaders and organizers of groups, uh, you know, the, the creative heads of theater groups. And also from the 80s onwards, the feminist question is articulated, I feel, much more strongly for itself. The feminist question is uh, articulated in the theater in its own interest. Uh, per se as feminist questions, which was not, I think, that uh, sort of um, sort of st- strongly articulated in the years that had preceded. So, um, and of course, from the 90s onwards, like I say, even in the preface to the book, everything changes, you know, once, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the sort of uh, the the turn towards liberalization is taken, the the market changes entirely, you have satellite television, you have uh, different kinds of funding opportunities, Um, you have a whole world of kind of, you know, um, sort of a capital, uh, a new kind of capital that opens up. And I think the, 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 the moorings of this group theater, the modes of, it or, of its organization inevitably change uh, post-1990s. I have said all this, uh, you know, in, briefly in the conclusion, but I, I had a very strong sense that things are very, very different from the 80s onwards. So I didn't want to, and, and it would require a completely different kind of approach and analysis. So I didn't um, venture beyond the beyond 1980. Right. So, uh, you know, you also use a lot of archives in your research. So if you could talk about the importance of archives, as well as some of the other research methods that you have used in this work. And uh, the second part of the question is uh, for you to also talk about some of the challenges that you may have faced methodologically, because it really helps budding researchers. Right. So uh, one of the major points that I've tried to address uh, in the introduction when I talk about these questions that you just asked is that when you're doing performance history um, and there are very many, very different, very kind of very many uh, different kinds of complexities. Uh, so for me, one of the major uh, sort of limitations of the period that I was studying is that um, uh, you were uh, limited by the kinds of sources that are available in the sense that you can't actually, uh, so in, in performance studies and in especially in performance history, um, live performance is everything. Um, I mean, theoretically as well, uh, a lot of performance studies is based on the assertion that the live performance cannot, in fact, be discursively translated uh, into into text, into analysis. The live performance has its own kind of ontological status. This is something I've also discussed in the in the in the introduction. So, therefore. Because you're writing about a period, and this is true of, true of a lot of theater, theater history and a lot of performance history, that you do not have access to the live performance as such, except perhaps in very rare cases as audio recordings, uh, in, in most cases through photographs in the periods that I was looking at, um, and uh, mostly uh, then through uh, anecdotal history. And this was this was very important. The fact that one was actually looking at stories about the theater. So what you had was then um, a sort of a range of textual sources. For example, um, perhaps uh, the reviews of the plays that you were 
uh, on the productions that you were discussing, the texts of the plays themselves. Um, in in uh, what has been really really important for me is the is the the writing of the actresses uh, that I was writing about their own writing, their their sort of scattered reminiscences, their interviews, um, their uh, sort of uh, in in the case of Kia Chakraborty, her critical essays, her fiction, uh, her own uh, sort of analytical arguments around what she felt about the theatre at the time. All this was extremely important. So, um, and not just the actresses themselves, but people around them, people who saw the plays, the people who had memories of the place so a lot of this was actually uh, in fact my archive uh, that which was published but also uh, listening to people uh, you know not not uh, uh, you know everyone but people who had who were you know for example one of the the, the chapters in the um, uh, chapters in the book uh, talk about a production of Doll's House by Shombhu Mitra. And there, if you read the book, you'll see that uh, what was crucial to that analysis was a conversation with uh, Professor Shomik Bandhubadhyay, who also writes the foreword to the book, who was actually one of the, uh, the uh, you know, in the audience in the, in the the when the play was first produced. And it was through... Uh, my um, sort of interview with uh, Shomikta, that I got a sense of what the play was actually doing in performance, which was impossible to understand from uh, the, the uh, published text of Utul Khala, which was uh, a sort of an adaptation by Shombhu Mitra of uh, Ibsen's Doll's House. So it was, so in a sense, this was anecdotal, you know, it was, this was anecdotal, this was, it, this was in fact uh, a story told about watching a performance, but it gave me a crucial perspective on, in fact, the set design of the play, which, which had a particular kind of um, political impact on the performance text. Uh, which was impossible to discern from the published text itself. So, um, so, so then a lot of these were, you know, the, these memories of people watching performances actually became important in 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 my work. But besides this, of course, uh, you know, in terms of you know, uh, literally archives, the Natoshot uh, archives were actually invaluable, where I found a lot of material on many of my chapters, but I also worked briefly in the PC Joshi archives in JNU, where also for the for the initial chapters, I found, found some material. Um, methodologically, I think for me, um, it was very important to ground my chapters in, uh, you know, the, the social and historical context of the decades that I was talking about. So I, I looked at a lot of material. For example, in the third chapter, there's a lot of talk about the state, state of un unemployment in India and Bengal at that time because I was trying to understand what in fact women's labor meant at that time. So I read a lot of kind of almost, uh, you know, um, essays that were uh, that were, that were to do with economics, that were to do with actually, uh, you know, the, 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 the sort of the census around unemployment and education at the time in order to ground uh, that essay in a certain kind of uh, social and historical reality, um, which was important to me. But it was also uh, 
very, very productive for me to actually do a close reading of not just the place that I was interested in, but also the the memoirs and uh, sort of uh, autobiographies, uh, you know, and reminiscences that I found of the actresses themselves. But then I also did things that were quite uh, eccentric in that uh, in two chapters, I read two different films, like, for example, in the second chapter, I was reading Ariti Khotuk's Komal Gandhar, because uh, Komal Gandhar depicts a theatre group uh, even though it's uh, it's uh, coming out in the early 60s, uh, it depicts a theatre group that obviously carries Ghotuk's uh, own memories of the Indian People's Theatre Association. And I was able to read, uh, in, a, in a sense, the ideological space within which the theatre group becomes a microcosm for an alternative vision of the nation through that, um, through that film. So in that sense, it was very, very uh, relevant to the questions I was asking. In the third chapter, I do a very uh, sort of a, a brief but very detailed reading of uh, Satyajit Ray's uh, Mohanagar, um, because I felt that that was one of the films in the 60s where the question of women's labor once again was was absolutely in the forefront and dealt with brilliant irony and uh, kind of astuteness by Ray. So that that was so I spent some time analyzing two films uh, because I thought it's it's both the films shed a certain light on the themes that I was interested in. Right. Now, in this book, Performing Silence, you actually talk about gender in a multifaceted way. So, uh, you know, what do you mean by that? Right. So I, I wanted to make it very clear right at the beginning that I was not prime only, at least I wasn't intending to only write about what women were doing in the group theater. I wanted to make it very clear that I was writing, yes, so so this is what I say in the introduction and it's, it's important, which is that, yes, I am interested in writing a political history of women in the group theater movement, which I try to do, which is why I said I try to ground it in the social and historical reality of the decades I'm writing about. I try to ground where these women are coming from, what lives they're living, what is happening in the world around them, because this is very much a political theatre movement. And these are political actors in that they choose to be in this movement. Uh, These women are, in fact, deeply political uh, in their their very different and rich, rich ways. Um, But... um, but I was also interested in writing a gendered history of the politics of the group theatre movement, which based these are two different things. Uh, to say that I am interested in writing a political history of the women means I'm only I'm interested in the women and the politics that and of the lives that they're living, the ideologies that determine uh, their reality, a certain kind of materialist reading of of their of their of their uh, sort of quotidian reality but uh, I'm also uh, I was also deeply interested I, I had a very strong sense that I would not be able to able to that was not enough I wanted to do something else which was also to actually look at the ideological structures uh, sort of uh, driving forces uh, the the frameworks uh, and even the confusions of the of the movement as a whole, and see how these uh, sort of ideological uh, sort of uh, structures were in fact gendered. So, and here I was drawing very very directly from Joan Scott's um, idea of uh, you know the the importance of uh, using gender as an analytical category. 
like as an instrument of analysis, like as as a lens. So in a se- in that sense, uh, what is Joan Scott suggesting? She's suggesting that it's not enough to talk about women. Not all women's history is feminist history. To write a certain kind of feminist history or feminist analysis of anything is to be able to use gender as an analytical lens, which basically means that even when women are not being um, sort of um, uh, apparently being discussed, not being you know not 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 this not the not the subject of discussion, so to say, they are not. Uh, you know, um, you know, as in, it's the, the woman's question is not at the center of the discussion. Even then, uh, main, many modes of political subjectivity, many, many, uh, you know, various different uh, ways in which uh, politics is done and understood and talked about are in fact gendered. Right. So even when we talk about, say, for example, when we talk about political prowess or efficacy in the political world, uh, even now it was much more common before. But even now in the politically correct world that we live in, um, at least within certain classes, it's very, very common to see political prowess and efficacy as a certain kind of masculinity, a certain kind of machismo even. So even when a woman is effective politically, one often sees uh, that power in 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 uh, in terms of a certain kind of uh, effective masculinity, right? Uh, so the woman becomes a certain kind of an honorary man. Um, so and there are numerous examples of this. I mean, at the time of Indira Gandhi, she was called, and I write about this. She was called the only real man in the Congress. Now, what is going on there? There is a way in which mas- masculinity per se is valorized as powerful, and to be a woman is is uh, is uh, sort of automatically uh, uh, sort of um, uh, devalued uh, as weak or ineffective, etc. So this is a way in which political language is gendered. I just give one example here. But the thing is, so I wanted to write a gendered history of the politics of the movement. So what was the gendering of the ideas that were being uh, that were being sort of um, uh, propagated? The ideas that were uh, one was aspiring towards as a group theater activist. So, uh, so therefore, a lot of my concern is with, uh, so for example, in one of the chapters, I do spend a long time discussing modes of masculinity or the ways in which uh, heroic nationalist masculinity uh, frames itself. And in relation to this masculinity, how is how is the woman conceived? I also discuss in the in the chapter on Utpal Dottu the, the modes of uh, sort of... Um, sort of two contesting modes of revolutionary masculinity that struggle uh, in his own plays. And uh, these are very, very interesting and important important questions because you cannot understand the, the gendered uh, politics of a movement as a whole unless you, in fact, look at, uh, look at the movement through, uh, through, by using gender as an analysis an analytical category and instrument and in that sense both men and women are important within that structure it's not enough to say you're just looking at women even though the title talks just about uh, women there's more there this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Right. So in conjunction, uh, 
I would also want to know about some of the major analytical frameworks as well as themes that you use in the book. Right. So I've already talked about some. We've covered some, uh, uh, you know, but uh, for me, um, say, for example, I was very clear that I was, uh, even though I don't know if I say this kind of uh, in so many words in the book, uh, I was doing a feminist uh, history, of course, but I was also doing uh, you know, I'm, I'm. I feel I'm deeply committed to historical materialism in the sense that I, I feel that I, I felt in every chapter that I needed to ground, like I said, the book, in the historical reality of the time as far as I could, and then ask, uh, you know, uh, questions that uh, that that went further. But I was, for example, uh, deeply, I, I don't know if I'll be able to enumerate all my questions here, but, uh, or, you know, analytical frameworks here, but I was, I was deeply concerned throughout the book with the question of labor. Uh, how do you understand artistic labor? What is the status of women's artistic labor or uh, the labor of uh, a full-time uh, actress in the theater which is a non non uh, sort of uh, paying uh, you know uh, non remunerative uh, art practice uh, with uh, you know the larger sort of uh, structures of the society around her what is happening to the economy of the country etc etc so labor also became uh, something that that uh, sort of grounded my analysis in the gendered ways in which uh, labor uh, by men and women uh, was being uh, read in the sense that a lot of I, I found more and more that as I as I try to understand these structures I found that um, women's labor in the theater was often read uh, in affective terms, in 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 not in terms of efficiency, not in terms of as not in fact as labor, but as a kind of love or nurture, and I I spend a lot of time actually looking at that in the in the in the third chapter, trying to understand that it was much later that um, I began to also. Um, sort of read much more deeply about social reproduction theories, uh, the work of Titi Bhattacharjo, the work of, you know, so, so uh, in fact, even Silvia Federici. I mentioned these people, uh, these uh, these theories uh, briefly in my preface and introduction, but uh, I, I thought it best not to kind of um, reformulate that entire chapter based on that. But those questions are already there. What is care? What is nurture? Um, how is, uh, you know, how is labor gendered and invisibilized? How is kind of a reading of labor as love uh, something that ultimately erases the whole spectacle of women's labor from this from the story altogether so that was one very important question the other say for example a sort of big framework that i use in the fourth chapter especially in analyzing upaldat's work uh, is is uh, i i actually uh, use the gramscian framework i look at um, you know, Gramsci's idea of the organic intellectual, uh, Gramsci's, uh, once again, Gramsci's uh, sort of um, 
ideas about labor, uh, intellectual labor and physical labor, who the organic intellectual is, because I found that on Upaldatu's plays, he was like almost like a leitmotif, the figure of the organic intellectual and the, and the woman as an organic intellectual was appearing, especially from from the late 50s uh, to to the to the late 60s. So I I look at that. So that's that's another important uh, sort of. Um, analytic framework that I use. And in the last chapter, uh, I go towards actually looking at the question of agency and problematizing what we understand uh, agency to be. And there I have gone towards the work of uh, Talal Asad, uh, looking at uh, whether it's possible to think of pain in agentive terms. I've also looked at the work of uh, Sabah Mahmood and to, uh, and, and, looked at how, in fact, uh, we can think of um, norm, self-actualization and resistance in different ways uh, within even even a kind of revolutionary context. So I look at the play Antigone, uh, Anwil's, uh, the French version of the play written in 1944, uh, produced in 1944, um, and that was the play that was performed during the emergency in Kolkata. And I use these uh, theorists in order to understand uh, Antigone's uh, role as a female political agent in a world where she, a woman is not allowed to be political. And I look at how we can we can differently understand within Antigone's um, passion. Um, uh, the possibilities of political agency itself. So that's something very complicated, which I summarize very badly, which happens in Chapter 5. But, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are many more, but this is what I can remember, right? Right. Uh, I'm sure there's many more, but uh, it's enough for the interview's purpose. So, uh, Trina, you do refer to the problematic position of the women performers in Bengali group theatre. So how do you look at it in relation to the IPTA and the Progressive Writers Association? I think I've already somewhat answered this question. I think with the IPTA, my... Uh, so I spend a long time in the introduction as well as in the first chapter talking about the Indian People's Theatre Association. And there are two primary concerns that I have, which I think remain relevant to the working of the group theatres afterwards in Bengal. Uh, one is the relationship between politics and culture, right? And in a sense, in Bengal, in the performance of Nobanno, uh, written by Bijan Bhattacharya and directed by both Shombhumitra and Bijan Bhattacharya, um, uh, which was uh, first performed in October 1944 in the Sri Rangam Theatre in Kolkata. Uh, it was meant to raise money for the People's Relief Committee um, uh, for the famine that had taken Bengal over. And this has been written about, I mean, the, the, the facts of the of this history have been written about again and again. I mean, there is there's so much work around it. Um, but what I was trying to look at is how this there is almost this kind of seamless coming together by most accounts of art and politics in the staging of Nobano, where political workers and and you know theater workers come together uh, in fact some first, some some become theater workers for the first time because see they see this uh, play as nation's work as working for the people uh, say for example Tripti Mitra who becomes an actress for the first time in her life uh, uh, not because she wants to be an actress, but because she she thinks this as an extension of her work 
for the people who are dying in the streets of Kolkata every day. So during the day, she runs the longer khana and the night, she's performing Nomanom. And this, it's a time that is traumatic, but it's also a time that is magical. I often refer back to um, how Malarika Sinharoy, uh, in her book on Nakshalbari and women, uses the term magic moment. So these are times of great crisis and and and. Um, and difficulty, uh, but these are also times uh, of of uh, great, uh, you know, struggle and optimism at the same time, and that's very very difficult to explain. So this is the time when Nobanno takes place. This is a time of a certain kind of uh, a, a magnitude uh, in in terms of artistic and political lives that becomes possible, uh, which predictably, of course, in a few years begins to break apart begins to fall apart because you know that kind of intensity and uh, you know uh, the magic moment is in fact a moment it cannot be prolonged forever so so the thing is i was trying to understand the kind of relationship between politics and culture that is imagined here the first iteration of the idea of a people's theater as a politically committed theater where artists and work workers in the theater. This is the first time the imagination of the person in the theater as a worker, you know, political worker. So political worker and a cultural worker uh, the would be professionally committed to a theater, a whole timer in the theater, sort of almost driven by the work of the people's theater like it was a mission. But in fact, the theater will be uh, a non-commercial space. So a self-sustaining theatre, which was in fact non-commercial, not dependent on the market or on the state, but where uh, 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 you know um, uh, an artist was in fact a whole-timer, sustaining him, himself or herself completely from the theatre. It's almost an impossible idea if you think about it. And Malini Bhattacharya writes about this, that it was, it was clear to uh, you know, those who could see that this kind of a theatre uh, could only be economically sus- sustainable or as an art even be sustainable as a political idea in a world where, in fact, capitalism had already collapsed, where we had actually reached a classless society. That was not the case. But the odd aspiration was that in order for the future that is imagined to come, um, one needs to begin to live as if it is already here. So in a sense, it was an idea in the future that needed to be actualized in the present. And that I thought was a fascinating idea. And it is, it's an impossible idea, but it's an aspiration that drives theater workers in the group theater for the next three or four decades. That leads people like Utpal Dattu to lease uh, uh, Minerva Theatre, Ajitesh Bandhubhattu to reach, uh, uh, lease Rangona Theatre to make this theatre a full-time work. Um, and sometimes they fail, sometimes they succeed, but this drives the theatre. Um, uh, and the other question was, of course, the question of gender and sexuality. How the, the female comrade was being imagined in the IPTA. And, you know, I try to do an uh, analysis of you know, what is the relationship of this politics to uh, sexuality, to gender, to the gendering of the female comrade? Yeah. Right. So uh, you do talk about Kea Chakraborty and, you know, uh, what does it mean to be a full-time actress in group theatre in the eras of the 1960s and 70s of Kolkata? So if you could, you know, uh, throw some light on the life of a professional woman artist and how it is shaped, yeah, so I think I've already kind of touched upon various points of this, uh, you know, answer. So, so then, if we were, I, we were just talking about this impossible idea, this idea that that 
theater could be a non-commercial enterprise, but something that does not depend on the commercial imperatives of the market, does not sell out, so to say, and it doesn't actually depend on state funding either. Um, so it remains uh, ideologically pure, but also kind of manages to sustain itself financially. And like I said, this idea drives, uh, you know, directors who are deeply committed to this politics to various kinds of financial and artistic experiments. And one of them is uh, Ajitesh Bandhapadhyay's Nandikar in the 60s, um, uh, where he finds he wants and he writes again and again in his essays that it's 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 impossible to imagine uh, theater as a as a part time occupation for the middle class, uh, you know, uh, who who sees theater as well as politics as a kind of ornament, you know, which you can wear and take off at will, and he says it sh- it should not be like that. He feels that theater should be a full time. Uh, full-time uh, passionate commitment uh, for uh, the for the theater worker in the group theater and uh, it is because of this reason that and, and uh, of course I mean Kya Chakraputi who's who's uh, training under him uh, who's also his collaborator his you know his friend um, looks up to him is like many other theater workers uh, is deeply convinced by this idea and so she, uh, she, uh, and this is the this is the story that the chapter tells. I've already talked about the theoretical framework of this chapter. So she, uh, she uh, gives up her job as a full time um, uh, sort of uh, professor of um, Scottish Church, and I think it, yeah, Scottish Church. Uh, she's a, she teaches English literature. She she gives up the job and becomes a full time worker for Nandikar, and of course she's unable to sustain herself financially. Um, and so I look at uh, it's it's almost a kind of a tragic myth. Kia's Kia Jokrabati's death in nineteen seventy seven. Uh, she 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 took up a role as a, as an extra in a commercial Bengali film because she needed the money for her mother's uh, treatment, and uh, she dies during an accident in an accident during the shooting and uh, this has been talked about again and again and she becomes you know as with you know most kind of tragic deaths with artists dying young she becomes almost a myth for the bangla theater world but i i was actually trying to understand what the systemic causes of this this kind of uh, you know this kind of end the fact that she was she was more and more being pushed to a corner uh, financially and otherwise to a state of absolute, uh, you know, a, a precarious condition um, and a state in a, in a life of very, very hard labor where she was working all the time for, for the for the theater. And this labor was not even recognized by her own self as labor. She was con- she constantly read this as love for the theater group. So I was trying to understand this life in the context of the questions uh, of the of the of the 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 economic structures of the group theater, the the status state of the economy of the country, unemployment, uh, the the precarious conditions of most artists, and especially a woman whose labor is constantly kind of erased from a story, uh, where she is seen as a as a, as a nurturer. Uh, so I, I argue that Kia is remembered as an actress, as an exceptional actress, as a good human being, as a very loving friend and sister, and uh, you know, but she, her, the story of her 
great efficiency as an organizer, as a as as a as a, as a, as a publicist, as a producer, for um, for many of uh, Nandikar's plays, actually becomes um, sort of far less seen in this history. So my this is part of my overarching argument that in the years between the 1950s and the 1980s, 1980, you mostly remember women as actresses primarily. It does not matter what work they're doing. You see them primarily as actresses. But the work of organizing and creating and thinking all, all, and especially technical work all, all, always seems to be relegated to men. Uh, it takes many years for the woman as organizer to return to this history. I mean, when she's doing the work of organizing her work to be recognized as such, it takes a lot of time. So I think um, these questions, um, you know, the, the 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 impossibility of uh, the 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 a uh, uh, woman like Kya Chakraborty actualizing herself in the conditions in which she was working in the theater. Uh, achieving fulfillment as an artist and as a passionate worker seemed almost impossible, which is why the larger systemic tragedy uh, of uh, the reasons for her death needed to be understood in terms of labor, which is what I've tried to do. Yeah. Right. So last question, Trina. Uh, I know you've already said that, you know, you've touched upon it in the conclusion, but uh, what would some of uh, the fundamental transformations that have taken place in the Bengali group theatre in the 1980s and 1990s be? I think I've already said most of this in the beginning. Uh, so yes, I think it for the 1990s onwards, as with the rest of the country and any kind of you know artistic endeavour, things change drastically. You know the reasons why, because the, the, the kind of... Um, um the possibility of uh, the possibilities of the market change uh, you know um entirely but uh, also i think now if you look at uh, the theater groups uh, in bengal which are as numerous and as active as they used to be perhaps more uh, there are in fact some very i mean at least in kolkata some very fundamental changes i mean overall for example, it is very common now for actors and you know actresses, uh, performers, to perform in one, more than one group. So in the in you know in what in the case of Kea or Tripti Mitra would have required asking for permission. The fact that one was actually, if you were a member of a certain group, you belonged to that group and you performed in productions um, by that group. That ha- is no longer the norm for everyone. There are many, many performers who now perform, you know, uh, in sort of um, as freelance uh, uh, actors in, in numerous groups, um, depending on the production. Sometimes uh, groups, in fact, don't function regularly, but come together under a director when a particular production is being planned. Um there are many more theater festivals than before. So in a sense, since the actor, once they have uh, achieved a certain kind of success, have many options to kind of perform in very many different kinds of groups. It's much more common for actors to actually also perform in television serials and, uh, you know, sort of uh, kind of um, sort of add to their supplement, their income in that way. And it is not looked upon with that kind of ideological um, 
criticism as it was before. I am not going to say whether I think this is a positive or a negative change. I I don't I, I do not have the you know the more the moral or the scholarly right to do that because I haven't studied this or I mean I I don't even believe in kind of making that kind of a moral judgment. But the thing is, this has happened. Uh, also, uh, I feel that. Um, um, so, so then this this changes the 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 modality of ideological commitment that we had seen in these years, and this almost impossible desire. So, and also, it's much more common for actors to demand at least a little bit of payment for the work that they're doing. I mean, especially when they've kind of become a little, you know, they're they've they've got they've been a little successful. They're senior. They they do get paid. It's not a lot of money, but there it's it's much more common for 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 actors to be paid. So in that sense, the group theater model or the group theater infrastructure is no longer as all consuming and all pervasive as it used to be. And if you look at it historically, it was inevitable given the changes economically uh, uh, that took place, uh, especially post 1990. Uh, in Bengal, of course, but of course, all over India, the, the the whole circulation of capital is very, very different. I'm not saying in any sense that the life of theatre workers is very easy now, and you know there are many, many different kinds of theatre groups which try to function in even now without state funding, even now uh, outside the proscenium in different kinds of circumstances, and their lives remain just as precarious. But this is also true for a lot of uh, actors that they, they work as freelance artists and they ask for payment. Yeah. Right. So thank you, Trina, for the very engaging and wonderful conversation. Uh, I would like to thank you for taking time out to do this interview. And, you know, yeah. Thank you, Ritaporna, for reading the book, for asking such uh, excellent questions. And it was an absolute pleasure talking to you.